0: changing, right? perhaps that is a thought that you have had. I know It's certainly a thought that I had uh, in the days that followed September 11th of what was my first year in college. No doubt that was also not a new thought, certainly not in God's big world. That was certainly the thought of a lot of folks in Egypt during Joseph's day. They, too, had tragedy. Famine had been ongoing for quite some time. So far, the the wise foreigner, a Hebrew named Joseph, one who had Pharaoh's trust, uh, he had kept the people of Egypt from suffering too terribly. And yet, even with that bright ray of hope, The famine just would not end. The world is changing. The world has changed. I have to think that this thought would have certainly gone through Jacob's mind at some point in the move from Canaan to Egypt. No doubt he never thought that he would end up in this foreign land with different practices alongside people worshiping Pagan, false gods. And yet that was exactly where Jacob and his family found themselves. They too had to flee the famine. For a time they even did okay. But now as the famine continues, deepens, worsens, it seems that even their host nation of Egypt will begin to suffer through the effects more and more. And this morning I wonder, dear church, If our position isn't so different, as you think back over the last few, well, whatever it is for you, maybe it's the last week, months, last couple years, doesn't it seem as if our situation so often has gone from bad to worse, or perhaps it's not even that, perhaps it's The the almost more demoralizing hope of where things that were bad have started to get better. And you thought, okay, it's all going to change. It's going to be how it was. And then it gets even worse. Have you been there? I suspect most of us have. If you're not there now, you probably have been before. Our position isn't so different, is it? You and I have incredible blessing in Christ. We have the the wonderful encouragement of his church. And yet we exist, we live, we go about our days in this world that is changing politically, socially, economically, certainly religiously. Maybe it feels like a foreign land to you. Maybe you've had times of wondering, where is God? hope when things aren't going well. Let's see how Joseph himself and how the people of God have responded to those very real questions in the past. Why don't you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 47. Closing in here these last few sermons in Genesis. I think the temptation at this point is to rush kind of at the end of the story. We can sort of see where things are going. We know uh, that the exodus is what's coming next. You know, That's the next kind of well-known part of the Bible. But if we rush over these chapters, we're going to miss perhaps some of the most helpful and profound truths of who God is and how we can trust him when everything is not Let's not miss this. Again, Genesis chapter 47. We're going to pick up in verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. The ongoing Joseph's original plan had the people, in effect, paying a tax of grain to Pharaoh over the seven good years. Right? They'd been doing that. That's what, that's what they had accomplished. Now, this was quite remarkable because at that time, the Egyptian government uh, was in a phase of being quite weak centrally. And so this is a big change now that's happening in this chapter. To this point, the Egyptian government itself was fairly weak very decentralized, and now it's all changing. Joseph's plan of storing grain at Pharaoh's command had effectively gathered more power into the Egyptian government. Uh, That wasn't his goal, that wasn't the point, but it was necessary if a nationwide tragedy was to be responded to in a nationwide way. Well, now the famine has hit. And as we've been reading now for for a number of weeks, things seem to be going okay. Right? the The people of Egypt were able to make ends meet. this This stockpile was was holding out. And yet, as the seven years of famine continued, the people of Egypt started running out of out of money. They couldn't draw off of this stockpile anymore. And with no money, we now come to the dilemma. The famine is ongoing. It's not over. And the people of Egypt still need to eat. They need grain and their livestock. Joseph, if you remember, is in charge of managing this stockpile. He's the uh, the government bureaucrat in charge of this program. And so he does what he can to care for the people. Okay, you know, sell your livestock, and you'll receive grain in exchange. If you can't buy it anymore, we'll go to the barter system. That ends up feeding the nation for another year, and and yet the famine hasn't run its course yet. Do you ever feel like that in life? Right, maybe right now with, with this insane inflation that we're having, right, where it seemed, I, mean I, th- I was going to say I think it's leveling off, I don't know whether it really is. We'll find out, won't we? But it seems like every time you go to the grocery store, it's like, okay, how much smaller is my whatever bag of coffee going to get and how much more is it going to cost? Right? Your bills just keep going up and up and up. Gas may have stabilized at a bit lower of a price, but you'll notice it's still much higher than it was even a year ago, even six months ago. Right? Life. Sometimes what is needed is not just to power through because there's going to be the bright sunny day on the other side. So powering through is a long process. I think I've mentioned before that uh, back in high school I used to run track. My thing with track was always short distances, right? 100-yard dash, that's what I could do. Or a 4 by 100 relay, something something like that. Um, there was one time, very foolishly, that I had decided um, I was going to go with a group of people down to Omaha, and we were going to, um, it was actually in in memory um, of the events of Mogadishu, uh, Somalia, some of you might know there's a book and a movie about this called Black Hawk Down, and we were going to be with um, some of the people who were there in Somalia that day, right, some of the military members, and we were going to go on this this run, this jog around Omaha. And uh, I went down there, and I thought, okay, I've been working out. This will be fine. And you know what? I did great for about 100 yards. Okay, I'll push through. Yeah, pushing through doesn't work across 10, 12. I think the final tally was something around 14 miles. There's no pushing through when you're a 100-yard sprinter. Sometimes our own efforts are not enough, are they? I did survive, obviously, but it was frankly because I got a lot of help from other people. Do you realize, do you see here that as many questions as you might start having, and we're going to have more in just a second about, wait, You mean the people are having to pay for this grain that was their tax and and now their livestock and soon their very lives? Do you realize that Joseph is doing all he can to help these people survive the famine? That's really what's going on. And yet, even as things get from bad to worse, it doesn't end, does it? people try to push through, and then the next year comes. Then the famine continues. Well, for the people of Egypt, now they're in a spot where they have no money, they have no livestock, they have no food. What now will they give in exchange? The people of Egypt end up offering themselves as servants to Pharaoh. They give their land as well, all that they are, all that they have, and the end result is that Pharaoh's hold over Egypt is increased, and yet the people also end up being fed. More on that in just a moment. Make sure, first of all, that you don't miss this reality. God has been taking care of his people, so Joseph and his extended family, right? These, these 12 brothers, their father, through. That very specifically so let me do it again God's not just taking care of, of them you know because of or around of or in the midst of the famine but instead he's taking care of them through the famine do you realize that sometimes and this is one of them that the way that God cares for his people is not to remove every trial or temptation, it is not to make life easier. It is not to somehow give us a way around every problem. But oftentimes, what he does is he brings us through it and asks us and calls us to trust him. That is the example of the scriptures again and again, repeatedly. Don't misunderstand. It's not wrong to pray, you know, Lord, please, can you, can you remove this trial from me? Of course. But if he does it doesn't, you might be in a situation like Joseph and his families. Remember at this point, Joseph's father, Jacob, that they had had to go to Egypt already twice to buy grain. Now they've moved to Egypt. The famine's, it's almost like it's following them. It's continuing to affect them. And all of that might make us wonder, why is the Lord doing this? Why is he testing them in this way? Or, Perhaps we might ask it this way: Why doesn't God just give them an easy life? I mean, what? they trust Him. Shouldn't that make things better? Now, let's be personal here. Why doesn't God give me? Why doesn't He give you an easy life? I mean, well, why does it have to be so hard to follow? Christ Jesus at times. Why must there be persecution and hardship and trial and tribulation? I mean, God certainly could have kept Jacob's family from being affected by the famine. The testimony of the scriptures is that God is in charge even of famines. And so God could have prevented it if he wanted, and yet he doesn't. And so often, he seems to bring you and I also through rather than around them? What's he up to? What's he doing? The answer is that he's up to your good. I've mentioned a few times in this series that the way that we grow in Christ is to learn how to trust him. It's to rely upon him. And so often, how do we do that best? It's when we can't trust in ourselves, our skills, our own preparation, our own planning, our own uh, adeptness at getting out of troubles and trials and problems. So often it's when we have no other resources or recourse other than to turn to God and say, Lord, help. I cannot do this. Ultimately, the reality is that if there's no testing, there's little, if any, growth. I suspect, perhaps, that that's the reality that so often we don't want to hear. We want the easy life. We're sold the easy life with every commercial, every ad in the glossy magazines, every perfect vacation picture on Instagram. We're told that the easy life is what we deserve and that if we don't have it, something's wrong, something's abnormal. But that's, Instead, reality, hear me out here, is far better, at least for the people of God, because if you look back over your life, I suspect you'll find something that's common, or at least it's been common in the stories of so many of you that I've talked with, that it was during the trials and hardships where you have learned what it really is to trust the Lord, more so than when life is going smooth and easy and Everything's, everything's great. It doesn't make trial and hardship fun. No, of course not. But it's during those times, if you look to the Lord during them, that a certain measure of maturity is being produced. One that otherwise, one that if you'd somehow avoid the testing, bit like running or lifting weights. The way to get healthy, it's not to read about running or lifting weights. It's not to think that these are good ideas. It's to get into the gym and actually do it. It's to use your muscles, which by medical definition means you are breaking them down to build them up. Hard work, then, is what makes you and I certainly physically, but it's also what makes us stronger in Christ. The flip side then, a a life of ease, of sitting around doing nothing, sort of the dream that's sold to us each and every day, it almost always leads to severe health problems sooner or later. And it's the same for our spiritual life. Growth in Christ looks like following God doesn't want you to have a flabby, dead faith. So in the trials and testing, what's he doing? Well, he's he's building up what's best, a solid and sure knowledge based on experience that every word he gives can be trusted and is to be believed. An an example of this, real-life example, a look at any faithful missionary who has served in a non Western country. Go read the stories of missionaries who have, have served in places where there is great opposition. And what you will hear is not that their life was easy. Certainly, the number of martyrs added to the church's rolls every year proves that it's not easy. But again and again and again, what you will hear is that God has been good that his promises are enough. It's always shocking to me, right? Uh, what was it, just uh, maybe a month ago or so when Rachel Belia was here? The the joy on the faces of those believers over in the Congo. And, and whenever I see that, it strikes me where I think, wow, they, they've got nothing. They don't have the medical treatment that we do. They, they can't go to... Stone brew and get their coffee, which is really good, by the way. You know, they, they they can't sit here in a nice air-conditioned sanctuary like we do. They don't drive to church in their their vehicles. And yet they sure they sure seem joyful, don't they? And it's because, by and They have learned, just as Paul tells us, whether he has much or little, to trust in Christ Jesus, the Lord, who provides all that is necessary. Friends, it might be scary for us to have that kind of trust as well, but I assure you it's worth it. It's the testimony that we're going to see unfolding throughout the rest of this chapter, is that God really will take care of his people, and he do it through the famine. So let's see how that plays out on the human level of the well, first of Egypt and then I want to get to Joseph's family. Look at verse 20. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land, right? State religion, that's what's going on there. Then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as seed for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made a statute concerning the land of Egypt, And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 rescuing the people. Before we talk about that, we need to clear up any misconceptions that we might be worrying about right now. Right, the word here in the English Standard Version, it translates as servant, uh, depending on what Bible you're reading, it might say slave there. And it's the same Hebrew word, and just depending on the context, is how you would translate it into English. Here's what I want you to note about that. The Egyptians themselves don't see things that way. They don't call themselves slaves. They don't act like slaves. Instead, notice, they are deeply thankful to Pharaoh. How shocking is that? And and by extension, to Joseph for dealing with them in this way. There's certainly no entitlement mentality here, now is there? Secondly, though Joseph certainly could have driven a harder bargain, he could have done whatever he wants, right? He had him over a barrel. He treats the people well. Pharaoh gets 20% of the crop, the people get the remaining 80%. I don't know where each of you are as far as your tax bracket and everything else, but 20% actually isn't that bad, right? This is pretty good depending on where you're at and certainly where you are in the world. Joseph's wisdom, then, is benefiting not only his family, but I want you to notice also the entire nation of Egypt. This makes a certain amount of sense, of course. If, If Egypt fails, so will everyone else who's present in the kingdom, which is now Joseph's own family. And it's that that I want us to see here. Because sometimes, We need to realize that God's plans are bigger and more widely encompassing than you and I tend to think. We live in the West, not just the West of the United States or the, the West of Iowa, but we live in what geographers call the global West. And one of the markers of Western society is individualism there's actually a lot of good things that come out of that. Don't hear me necessarily harping on it. But it also tends to blind us to some of the realities of the world we live in. And so we tend to almost always think in individual terms about life. Hey, what's in it for me? How do I benefit from this? What about what I want in life? No wonder. I mean, that's what we're... Hold repeatedly through advertisements. That's how politicians hope to win your vote. But I want you to see that God's plans aren't just for individuals. The God of the universe has not done marketing surveys to, to see what demographic he should appeal to because he doesn't need to. He's God. He does what he wants and he does what is best. No, instead God so often works for groups, for nations, for his church across time. And from that perspective, all that God is doing here, even in Egypt, even for these pagan people, it's good and it's best and it's righteous. The the people of Egypt benefit from God's care, even though they don't worship him. Elsewhere in the Bible, it speaks of the purpose of this. him to giving your allegiance to the one true God. And not only do the Egyptians benefit, but the Hebrews, God's people, end up being protected because God is keeping his promises just as he always had. Given way back with Abraham, being fulfilled in pardon in Christ this is the story of the God who keeps his promises from start to finish beginning to end and so often I think at least in, in my own life maybe in yours we believe that when things don't go well or according to plan or when life doesn't turn out how we want when school is hard and you don't get the raise at work When the budget just doesn't seem to be making it. When your hopes are dashed. So often we are tempted to think, well, where is God? And that's the question that our world says anyone of faith should be asking. That's the doubt that we're supposed to have in our minds. And the answer from the scriptures is, God's still here. He's still at work. Will we trust him? question doesn't change based on the circumstances. Here, in the midst of famine, what do God's people need to do? It's what they've always needed to do. To trust in their faithful God who guides them. Let's see that here next. Look at verse 29. time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me And he swore to him, then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed, preserving the promise. Seems like a strange scene, doesn't it? Joseph is called on, remember the context, this is during a time of famine and hardship. He's called on by his father Jacob, who's getting quite elderly. Read of his death here very soon, to bury him, notice not in Egypt, but where? Back with his fathers, back in the promised land of Canaan. And what's more, did you catch those those little words that we've seen before in Genesis? Right? did you did you catch what it ultimately said? Be fruitful? Multiply greatly right, that's the command and the blessing that God originally gave to Adam and Eve it's what we read for Noah and his family after the flood almost the same wording is given to Abraham about his family it's the same thing that we see the Lord giving to Jacob back in chapter 35 again and again and again right now see it, verse 27, the Lord is blessing his people. Here in the midst of famine in a foreign land, no part of that blessing has failed. No part of it. No promise of his has been found void. Nothing has been forgotten. And so the reality that you and I need to see is that changing situations in our lives, our marriages, Families, with our health, our work, our vocation, our finances, none of those nullify the promises of God. None of them. None of them are more powerful than the God of the universe. None of them change his plan to use us and bless us with himself. I want you to think a little bit forward now in the scriptures. Think of Jesus when he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Do you remember what point Christ made? So often I think in our minds we we think it was just the storm. Oh, He he calmed the storm. Right? The disciples were threatened with drowning. What they needed most was was rescue from this terrible storm. And that's usually how we think, right? We, we, We see the immediate problem. That's what the disciples saw. Lord, don't you care that we're drowning? Yet when we only see that, we miss the fact that the real issue in our life, the most fundamental need, is for us to have faith in Christ. It's to look to him, it's to trust him. How do I know that? Christ's reply to his disciples. Do you remember this? Why are you afraid? O oh you of little If it's just about a storm, that's a really odd thing to say. But if it's about trust, well, then that changes everything, doesn't it? There's no need to fear when Christ is near. And as Christ has told his disciples in John chapter 16, they do have God near all the time. Because they would be given the Holy Spirit. not fear because there is nothing in this world that can uproot us from Christ. And it's not that we have nothing hard. It's true. There's lots of hard things in life. It's not because there isn't trial or tragedy. If you looked at your calendar today and saw September 11th, you know the reality of that truth. No, it's that we don't need to fear because God is with us. We are with him. He has not forgotten his people. The call of this passage then is a call for faith. Right? It's a call to trust that Jesus is who he says he is. It's a call to believe that all that God has promised, that, that the God who has kept his promises to this little family of Jacob, the family that would grow into Israel, that it's the same God who has kept his promises to about a Messiah, the Savior who emerged from this family line, this family right now going through the famine. And that same God is your God and mine. He is the one we can trust. He is the God who has promised us that even now he's preparing a place for us. He is the Savior who has said, I will come back. He is the one who has told us that I will be with you and you will be with me. This is our God. This is why we have hope. This is the one who enables us to walk by faith, to show others his goodness, and to enjoy him forever and forever and forever. How will you do that this week? It's easy to say that this is who God is, this is what we need That's the easy part. How will you embrace this? How will you walk in this? How will you live in this this week? Let me give a few suggestions. There's no doubt many, many, many more. Here's the ones that come to my mind. I know what I'll be doing is reminding myself of who God is by looking at his word each day this week. chapter after chapter, you don't need to have one figure out what it looks like to remind yourself of this God this week. I know I'll be reminding myself of him as I get on my knees and pray. So often stumbling prayers of, Lord, I'm not even sure what about this I'm supposed to do. And again and again and again. Just by making that a know that if this week is like other weeks, at some point or another, there's going to be some sort of frustration, something that will cause me to despair. It would be a great week if there's only one thing, wouldn't it? And I'll take that to the Lord, maybe to my wife, and again and again and again, trust that the Lord has surrounded me with the people that I need to remind me of his faithful goodness through thick and through thin. What do you need to do this week to keep the cross in front of you with whatever's coming? Let's spend a moment in prayer asking the Lord to keep our eyes fixed on our Savior to work into us whatever habit or practice or devotion that is to return here a week from today to be found faithful, not because of our strength, but because of the strength of our great God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read of this small extended family that again and again and again throughout the book of Genesis seems to one problem to another. Sometimes problems that they had no idea were even coming. Other times it's problems that they themselves have made by their own sin. Lord, as I look at your word, I see a whole lot of parallels to my life, to my problems, my struggles, my sins. And yet, Father, I also see a whole lot of parallels of how you have for that wayward family through thick and thin when they raised their hands in worship to you and when they raised their fists against you how you did not give up on them how you have called them and drawn them to yourself repeatedly called them to worship called them to trust you to believe what you have said to walk in obedience to all that you have promised for us is no different. We, too, are called to walk in obedience, not to earn any promise, but because you have given us every promise that we need. Lord, for each of these dear faithful brothers and sisters, would you even right now be giving them what is needed as they would walk faithfully? what is needed as far as carving out time simply to rest in you or to calm our anxieties or to give us a little bit of hope to end the day praising you for your faithfulness. And so, Lord, our prayer is that would you feed us, your people, the bread of life that we need. the end result not be some sort of grudging, cynicism, always waiting for your promises to fail, always wondering if you're good enough, but instead would you slowly build into us then an abiding joy, the joy of trusting, the joy of serving, the joy of knowing and being known by our Savior, holiness and majesty and grace to those around us this week. In our faithful and sustaining Savior's name,